You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I'm Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and with me... As usual, my co-hostess with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. I'm glad to be here. Are you? I'm always glad to be here. Are you? I'm almost always glad to be here. <laughs> Some weeks you're like, do I really have to do the podcast? Well, I mean, there's there's times that we don't do it in the uh, here in the studio. And yes. I prefer to do it in the studio because I like the sound. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's an issue of driving out here at... Uh, Thursday evening. Yeah. Well, I also like to do it in the studio because I like to give you the wrap it up hand signal when you're talking too much. And I think that we do lots of over talking when we are not actually physically together. Okay. Because you can't see when I'm like wanting to jump in. Okay. Well, that may be too. So it's good to be in the studio and I'm glad to be here and I'm looking forward to the podcast because there's a couple of uh, interesting things we have to talk about. Yeah, it's been kind of a crazy week. Like we're seeing, well, Thanksgiving Well, it was a crazy week for us because it's always busy after a long weekend. Yeah, and there's so much to do in such a short amount of time. So Thanksgiving happened and we're seeing, you know, I guess probably the start of the reporting of Thanksgiving cases. Oh, now? COVID cases? COVID cases, Yeah, yes. I don't think I, that, that's not started yet. That's not started yet. But, I mean, we're, we are, we never really had a wave the first time in BC. And I think we're we're having our wave now. I think it's yeah. happening. I mean, the test positivity rate is around 1.5% right now. You sound like you're, you just lost your... <laughs> yeah, I'm getting a bit of a cough. Well, there I, you I might go. be having another flare-up. Bonnie Henry was coughing this <laughs> afternoon. I know, I saw that. So... She'll have to go get COVID tested, <laughs> but it is that time of the year. I can tell, you know, um, I can tell Bonnie Henry, it's really unpleasant mm-hmm. <laughs> having that thing stuck that far up your nose mm-hmm. into your brain. I'm sure she knows. I'm sure she's had one. They said it's into the back of your throat, but it's, that makes absolutely no sense because they went straight up into my brain. Ugh. My throat's not there. There is a case where there was a woman who had it shoved so far back that it actually punctured the lining of her brain and brain fluid leaked out her nose. Yeah. I was worried about that. Kind yeah, of felt me too. like that was happening to me. Yeah. Anyway, um <clears throat> I brought up COVID and cases and numbers on the rise because of course in British Columbia, we've and you and I have talked about the reopening of the courts back when in June when courts were reopening and and traffic court now has transitioned back into courthouses. For the most part, I think it's still at UFV and um, Kwantlen, but otherwise, traffic court. We're back at traffic court downtown Vancouver. Robson Square is running two courtrooms at a time. Richmond is running traffic court. Um, Port Coquitlam is running traffic court. North Vancouver is running traffic court, all in the courthouse, where we belong. Well, I know it is where we belong, but it is pretty tight spaces in some of those places. Coquitlam's not bad. Um, Richmond's not bad, but Vancouver, it's really tight there. But Vancouver's been pretty sparse. You know, the week I've been there, um, well, it's two weeks now that I've been back there, and I've seen barely any people. They're scheduling five people per Mm. session Uh and staggering the sessions every half hour. Okay, well, that's the reason it would stretch it out. Yeah. So, good. So, 
We were able to, in June, get traffic court back up and running. And then in September, when our community locations had to revert back to their community purposes, like high schools and elementary schools, we were able to get traffic court back up and running safely in our courthouses. That is not so across the country. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't, I haven't been monitoring it outside of BC and we've got enough stuff going on, but well, uh, the, I know in Ontario, they are like shutting down traffic court again. Yeah, Ontario Court of Justice has suspended all traffic court and provincial offenses hearings until January 2021, like next year, adjourned without your right to be heard on the adjournment or make submissions, just until January. So October, November, December, and into mm -hmm. January. March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December, January. Oh, they, ha they haven't had they court back up? They hadn't had traffic court back up. Wow. So They've... they're going to end up staying a bunch of these because they're not going to be able to... I mean, the Jordan timelines, are, they're going to look at other provinces and see what they did. Well, yeah. And I mean, you can, you, you can say, oh, Ontario's <laughs> having a worse situation. They're having bigger outbreaks. But you can still manage putting the people in the rooms like we have in BC traffic court sheriffs at the door of the courthouse checking you you're on the list for court you can come in asking you all the health screening questions making sure you sanitize before coming in enforcing social distancing in the courthouse I was in court today and the sheriff was wandering up and down the halls there were more people than would ordinarily be there I was in court for a serious matter with a big community interest and the sheriffs were making sure that even these people, who most of whom were in the same bubble, were distancing. So you have sheriffs who are monitoring it, and then you so, have the courtrooms. So why can't they do that in Ontario? And, well, exactly. I mean, even our courtrooms have been retrofitted. There's a big plastic shield between the JJP and council. And Whether that does anything, I don't know. Maybe. Well, I wonder about the plastic shields. Prevents the... the Speaking moistly, the moisture from the speaking moistly to get directly to the like judge. You're already like 10 feet, 10, 15 feet away from the JJP anyway. I know. You've got some distance to start with. There's distance. Yeah, it's not great ventilation, but there's distance. There's um, there's plastic barriers. Most people are wearing masks. You have to sanitize when you go in and your health screened. And I would like to say that I'm going to commend the BC Provincial Court because June 15th to October 15th, Today, the day that we're recording, there has not been a single exposure event in any of our traffic court locations. Yep. So they've managed to do it. And in Ontario, they've and managed to do just it not safely. bother. Yeah. In Ontario, they didn't even try. Like, I, I don't, I, you know, I get that. What are you going to do? What happens if this is the new normal? What happens if they can never come up with a vaccine and we have to somehow distance and, you know, maybe there'll be some herd immunity, but. It'll also be like the cold. What yeah, are they going to do in Ontario? They're just never going to have court and traffic court again? Well, we even, our governments stepped up and amended the Offense Act in BC to allow the defendants to appear by telephone, whereas before it could only be the prosecutor, the officer, who would appear by telephone. Now both parties can appear by phone, sort of. Kind of. Kind of. 
there's That's a, a discussion for another day, I think. <laughs> there's a debate going on, but perhaps about the interpretation won't. of the law. Yes, we may not raise that right now. It's uh, working through. It's got to work its way through our office before it works its way into the public. It's working its way through the office. Anyway, the uh, that was the big COVID news. The other big COVID news was this uh, this news story about how long COVID can live on a surface. Yes. And all these people are saying like, oh, but that's in laboratory settings. It's not in real world settings. But I texted you as soon as I heard about the study and you and I were on the same page. Well, yeah, because the point is that when you blow into an approved screening device, it goes inside the device and then it's sort of preserved in that device and it's maintained at a fairly consistent temperature. So around 20 degrees because the officer takes it from the detachment inside the vehicle. Mm -hmm. uh, when they check the temperature on them and when we see the recorded temperature, particularly at this time of the year, it's like 20 to 25 degrees. So the optimum temperature range where there's no ultraviolet light inside an area where there's there's no air movement except yep. the people blowing. Yep. So there's no air to dry it out. Yeah, there's no like on, just general air exchange. On a plastic surface which was the worst thing that mm -hmm. was where it lives the longest so you've got a vinyl tube plastic uh and plastic nipples that the that the uh there's two nipples um that uh, i just like saying that yeah i was gonna say um, like do you want a dollar for, the, for every time you say nipple on this podcast <laughs> the two nipples for the uh for the flow meter and for the sample chamber mm -hmm. and so if it can stay, how many hours was it? How many days was it? It was like 48 days. Yeah. I mean, yeah, okay, at it's some not point it's probably not likely. But you could imagine like those early studies where they said 32 hours um, is seeming pretty, mm, you know, uh, probably quite reasonable to accept 32 hours and maybe longer. So using an approved screening device for more than once as far as I'm concerned, is unsafe. Yeah, and you and I talked about, like, what could they do to clean it after every person blows, blow raw alcohol through it? Nope. That'll wreck the fuel cell. Bleach? Wreck the fuel cell. There's nothing you can put through yeah. it. Um, you know, you can't blow air into it because you can damage the flow meter or the fuel cell. There's nothing you can blow into it. It's designed to take breath. I suppose you or could... Or breath with a little bit of alcohol in it. You could hook it up to a simulator. Yeah, I know, but the simulator has very little alcohol in it. Right. So simulator solution that's designed to give 100 uh, milligrams percent has very little alcohol because remember, it's it's um, it, it's not like it's raw mouth alcohol. One right. drop of raw mouth alcohol will give a reading that's 300 milligrams or that's more. That's why every time I drink those bottles of simulator solution, I don't get drunk. Well, that's the thing. The simulator <laughs> solution. I remember I used to put it in my simulator and I thought, well, it should last forever, basically, if it just sits there, if it's not being used. No. No, it grows. Stuff grows in there. It's not yeah. enough alcohol in there Creepy. to keep it from. Yeah, stuff will grow in there. There's not enough alcohol in there to keep it from growing. So you'll have a terrarium. Uh, there'll be there'll be life in your simulator. I've got life in these, the simulator that's behind that dear, Smith and Wesson one. Or dear podcast listeners, these are the conditions I have to work the in. The CMI, the, the CMI one behind the my desk. Disgusting human particle 
bacterial terrarium. It's just a simulator. It's just a simulator. It's sitting behind my desk. I just wanted to see how long it would take before something started to grow in it. Now we know. <clears throat> but yeah, the simulator solution is just ethanol, right? And but it's very low concentration just, of ethanol. It's not just detectable COVID that is on the surface. It's potential to be infectious. Yeah, it can be transmitted from it's that. It's transmissible surface. living bacteria that can kill I know, you. I know, I know. <coughs> How yeah. are we doing ASD testing anymore? I, I just amazes me. And you would think that one of the questions, if I was a police officer, I would be concerned enough about the people that I would probably be asking the question, do you have any underlying health issues? Do you have asthma or diabetes? Do you have heart, any heart problems? Okay. Gosh, if only... I might just skip it. I might just skip the ASD test. If only they had trained... <coughs> hundreds, thousands of officers across the country to do some type of other test to detect some impairment. Some sort of like a, like a standard test, a yeah. test that they could all do. Like that they a, could administer in the field. Yeah, to check for sobriety. If they Gosh. had some, like a standardized field sobriety test. If only that power existed <laughs> in section 320.27 of the criminal code. To do a standardized field sobriety test, yeah. including horizontal gaze nystagmus, walk and turn, one leg stand. Gosh. Yep. Well, it's all there. They could do it, and they could do all of that safely in a COVID era. But nobody asked me. <coughs> Speaking of Jeez, officers. you're coughing a lot. I'm worried now. Here we are in the studio. Sorry. I don't want to get your cough. I wasn't coughing what before I came in here. Well, that's I, good. You know, I don't, I don't know. I'm just starting to cough right now. <clears throat> I'm also very tired. Um, the other thing that we should talk about briefly, because you brought up officers and safety and being concerned about it. I think you and I talked a couple times about VPD going to things, breaking up big parties, officers getting infected with COVID. <laughs> and I lambasted the officers at the time for... You mocked them outright. Not wearing masks. You were... You were, you were... I would say, on the verge of cruel. Well, I retract my cruelty towards the individual officers, but I doubled down on my cruelty towards whoever makes decisions at the Vancouver Police Department because I learned that this week was the first time they were issued masks. I know, I couldn't believe it. We bought masks. We managed to get masks in various different locations. We I had think boxes of masks around the office. The idea popped we had in our, our head own, and we had the we masks had, within a month. We had our the masks that we ordered. The lawyer told me not to talk to you masks within a, a month. A thousand of them. Yeah, in a month. Yeah, so, you know, VPD could have outfitted their officers. They didn't have to use specially branded VPD masks. They could have got... Are they? Are they? Yeah, they? oh yeah. Yeah, of course. They are. And I've heard... A lot of dissatisfaction generally with the masks. Um, well, they're not good quality. If, if you are a Vancouver police officer, feel free to log on to lawyertoldme.com and uh, order yourself a lawyer told me not to talk to you mask. They are reversible <laughs> and they're only $14.99. We still have some. I don't know how many. I know that, you know, we will only have them listed on there as long as we've got some to be able to supply orders. But. And if you're lucky enough to run into me in traffic court, I may have one or two in my briefcase. That are unused, brand new. Good. I keep them with me to give to people. Anyway, yeah, that's a long time. I mean, holy Jesus. Six, six, seven months into the pandemic and they finally got masks. I just can't believe it. But, you know, it's... And they're asking these officers to enforce all of these social distancing rules without having given them the PPE to do it. 
Well, the uh, there's a lot of the younger guys have been very cavalier, I noticed, and uh, the older guys have been more concerned, understandably so. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, what happens if a uh, a wave of COVID gets into a police detachment? You know, so far we know that there's been officers who have had it. Yep. Um, and we don't know, you know, whether or not it led to any other secondary transfer in the police detachments. But I know of two who were very sick. Sheriff of... two. Yes. Oh. A couple sheriffs I know of that got sick, but two VPD officers who were very sick, one of whom um, was hospitalized. Yep. So, um, <clears throat> I worry about that. I worry I about, worry about it too. You know, yeah. they're exposed to so much more, but... Well, okay. we, we deal with them too. So, I mean, we are also at risk because we go to traffic court. So yeah. we so, are at secondary risk and so is everybody they pull over. Bosses in the Vancouver Police Department, please equip your officers with the appropriate safety equipment. You wouldn't send them out without wearing their bulletproof vest under their uniform. You don't send them out without a mask. Well, and if you're an officer, as far as I'm concerned, you know, get your own mask. If they don't give you a mask, this is an issue of your own safety if you end you up in front of the... sick on the uh, job, Sue. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if they are complaining uh, that you're wearing a mask and you're following um, the uh, health and safety guidelines of the provincial and federal governments, then um, I don't think their complaint is going to get very far. Speaking of complaints, Paul... There's always complaints, Kyla. I have a lot to complain about this week. I know, and this is I one we've been waiting on for a while. betrayed by our government. Totally. So, a long time ago, back when the world was normal, but we never thought about this type of stuff, the government wrote a bill to amend the Motor Vehicle Act. And in the Motor Vehicle Act Amendment Bill, they had some provisions related to IRPs. We talked last week about the 60-day time limit to file for judicial review of your immediate roadside prohibition decision. They also added in two provisions related to evidence in the review hearing. The first is not that concerning to me. The first one says, instead of the language that the adjudicator's obligated to consider any relevant written statements or materials submitted by the applicant, now it says the adjudicator's entitled to consider any relevant written statements or evidence. On its face, not so problematic, but... Imagine if you had a review hearing, and look, I'll give you a perfect example of the hypocrisy in action. Imagine if you were an applicant with a review hearing, and somebody sent in something, unbeknownst to you, that was contrary to your case. They found out you were having a hearing. A co-worker who overheard you talking about it, your wife who's angry at you because she wants custody of the kids and she's divorcing you, or whatever and they send in something to the superintendent saying, this guy's drunk all the time, or this guy drives drunk, or I saw him that day and he drank six glasses of vodka before he got into the car. Yeah, it can be a complete lie, of course, because you can't sure. cross-examine. Nobody can be cross-examined at the hearing. And the hearings are conducted in camera, so it's Which not like... Which means in secret. Yeah, so it's not like, you know, you're you're risking your reputation or anything by making a false allegation against another person. But now... The adjudicator is legally obligated to consider that because before it was evidence submitted by or on behalf of the applicant and evidence submitted by the police. And now it opens it up to the world writ large to submit evidence in 
people's IRP review hearings. And the government has given no explanation of why this is necessary. None but whatsoever. the part that really freaking irks me about it is we have had cases where people come to us on a Thursday. And their written hearing is scheduled for 9.30 Friday morning. And I stay late and I come in early and I scramble to get everything done you know, 200 pages of material plus an affidavit all sent off to the superintendent in that, like, less than 24-hour span because they refuse to adjourn the hearing. And then we get a phone call from someone at Road Safety PC going, um, we just received a bunch of submissions from you, but there's not an authorization, so we can't consider them. Even though they're submissions from a lawyer that say, I act on behalf of, blah, 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 I write to make written submissions, and like I'm going to spend my time doing it for someone who's not my client. But they require you to have a signed authorization. But the Motor Vehicle Act didn't ever require that. And now with this provision being what it is, are they going to require a signed authorization for everybody else submitting evidence? Or will they they now no, no longer care about the signed authorization if it's just been sent in? Well, Maybe they just have to consider it now, I regardless mean, of the signed authorization or not. Statutorily, they'd be obligated to consider it absent an authorization or not. Well, let's hope they're forced to take that interpretation. But it, it just it's so frustrating, the hypocrisy of it, because they're going to open it up to the rest of the world to say things. But if I'm a lawyer, I have to have an authorization before I can send in my client submissions. It's ridiculous. And they'll send them back, which I don't even make, make any sense. Have I, have I ever told you this? They send they them, back them back to us. I know. They Thank you for sending me a fax back. Yeah. I don't need the submission I wrote. You could just send a back. short little note saying I, we have a 26 page or 118 pages. We have to, we cannot consider them. Just stupid. Instead, they fax them back to our office. Yeah. Comes out in paper out of our office. It's so dumb. So... <sighs> That's the first change. The second change That's is... That's the relatively not bad change. Yeah. I mean, the likelihood mm. of the things I'm imagining happening are probably slim. Oh, it'll happen. You know it'll happen. It will I mean, happen. there's 13,000 of these things issued a year. It will happen. The... Sorry, 13,000 a year? There's more than 13,000. About 15,000 a year. No. It's between 11 and 13 was the... Uh... Okay. Um, what is more concerning to me is they've added a provision to the adjudicator's powers to consider things, that the adjudicator may, on their own initiative, consider any relevant material that would assist them in determining the case. They literally gave the adjudicator an investigative power to go out and get whatever they want to determine the case. So they're no longer a a non-biased adjudicator they're now an investigative yeah they're an investigative tribunal they are against you by statute yeah because as we know the burden of burden is on you you're presumed guilty and now the tribunal is is empowered with investigative powers to investigate things to undermine you yeah and it is legitimately to undermine you because the provisions that allowed them to consider technical materials which were already bad enough the courts have interpreted those to mean that the adjudicator doesn't have to consider technical materials to assist the applicant, only to respond to things the applicant raises. So the adjudicator doesn't have to go, I don't have any evidence before me about the flow rate and volume of the ASD. 
asked for a suitable sample and your doctor says that you're only capable of blowing 1.2 liters of air per second, the adjudicator doesn't have to go and look that information up and go, but I have technical materials and so I can resolve this. They go, you didn't provide that evidence and that's your fault and that's fine. For, yeah, fine for them because they're if, rejecting it. But if you send in evidence to show that like the alcohol standard is not suitable for use with an approved screening device, they can go out and they can get their own evidence that the alcohol standard is suitable and then send it to you and be like, oh, yeah, actually I went and got this evidence, so you lose. The thing that That's an actual me, example. Here's the thing. Oh, I know. I know. I know you know, but the listeners don't know. Here's the thing that disgusts me the most about this. We stood in court when the second version of the IRP scheme came out. And we stood there and we ended up in a debate with the judge that day. And we had pointed out all of these problems with the legislation. And he said, but do we have to throw out the, the whole thing? Can't that just be fixed? here and there with judicial, judicial decisions. Yeah, and it was working and we were doing well, it. Well, and we said, well, I suppose that's one way of doing it, but when you look at the whole, you should turf it. And in the end, he went with the, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. And ever since then, ever since then, every move the government has made has been to make it creepier and to remove legitimate defenses. Well, and to and amend to, to, the legislation specifically to respond to cases that have legitimate defenses. And it's not just the government. It's the government in conjunction with the police. Oh, I know. With the, with the, absolutely. With I almost association said in of collusion, but I didn't. Yeah. I wouldn't say that. Um, in association with them, sharing back and forth as they, as they, come up with plans to be able to thwart people's legitimate arguments because the police don't think they're legitimate. Well, look, okay, we recently started succeeding on a bunch of cases because of a judgment that criticized sort of boilerplate evidence and the scant evidence that's reduced to a series of checkboxes or templates. Yes. And that's basically all of the police evidence. And the RCMP has this template narrative form that asks the officers a, a series template. of leading questions and suggests the answers. All a template. And God forbid the officer get it wrong. It's amazing how often they even get the template wrong. Yeah. But they changed the template. They have a new template that asks them open-ended questions because they don't want to be accused of using this template evidence that they've been using all along. Well, I kept pointing out each time in the hearings. And this template that they're using is from September 2012. Yeah. That is at least three versions of the IRP scheme back. And this template does not contemplate this. And this template does not contemplate this. And this template does not contemplate this. Yep. And as a consequence, the police officer has not considered this, this, this in their 30-page uh, manual for using the Alco Sensor FST. Yep. So they just, you know, they replaced the form. We, so they, we won Lemieux. So, so we made that complaint and we we kept making this argument and gee, somehow, somehow the, police, the evidence changed. The police came up with just a knew it. new tent. They just knew it without, oh, nobody ever called them or anything. Nobody's argued it in court. Nobody's ever argued it in court, but yeah. somehow, yeah. So mm -hmm. I've said in the past that there's a little bird. It's not just a little bird. There's it's just a big like, bird. It's a big bird. So there's, there's just like somebody at the tribunal it's kind of like the judge talking to the prosecutor in the evening or something about. The well, we don't know that it's a decision maker. No, I no, it's not. It's not I an adjudicator. I call into question the integrity of the tribunal, but <clears throat> no, it's not an adjudicator. But it's basically the same as as getting together and talking about what evidence, like you know, phoning up the the police officer and saying, "Or oh, what are you going to say tomorrow?" 
the even the form that the superintendent requires the officers to submit. I want a case Lemieux uh, a long time ago now 2018 feels like 10 years ago um, because the officer checked no there was no delay but there was five minutes of delay and she never explained it and so they just changed the form and took that box out like oh well the, if, if we don't want officers to get confused about what is and what isn't delay we'll just take the question out just remove it well um, they are going to run into more problems that I see as a result of it so that each time they think they're clever and I guess we think we're clever and we come up with some new thing that we're looking into that we've been looking and wondering about for a long time. And then they decide to make a change and it's not really the good change. And the real issue comes down to unreliable evidence using unreliable devices for unreliable testing procedure to give people really ridiculously stupid, harsh punishment. Yes. Um, one final topic today, Paul. A final topic? Before we get to your favorite okay, moment. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Final topic is Prince Edward Island. What's up with that? What is up with that? Yeah, Prince Edward Island. It's a um, it's a strange it's place. Island. It's an island. It's small. It's got it's Anne got of a, Green Gables. Yeah. Potatoes. I don't... What is the... Hey, Suri, what's the population of Prince Edward Island? As of 2017, the population of Prince Edward Island was 152,784. 152,000 people in a very small area, and yet they can't seem to get home at night without driving drunk. I don't understand why, like, somebody hasn't invented the, like, fucking Prince Edward Island shuttle, where they just shuttle people home from the bar. I know. Well, I mean, that's what taxis are, but, like... But, like, create, come, a, create a drunk person shuttle bus, pay using, by tips. Drunk I know. people why tip a lot. Why aren't, how is this not being addressed in some way to get people home? Because... Uh, drinking and driving is apparently up yet again, still going up. It never seems to go down in Prince Edward Island. The judges sentence people to jail on their first offenses. That was by agreement. Yep. The judges just came, decided this is such a chronic problem. So bad. We're, We're just, just going to start sentencing days. people to jail. And the, I thought that was ridiculous because jail is not a deterrent. Getting caught is the deterrent. But like getting caught is obviously not the deterrent either because they're catching the people. Uh, yeah, well, and it's publicly known that they're like getting caught. There must be like all four roads in Prince Edward Island. Well, that's so. the thing. So why is it so, Why? how is there so much drunk driving? I don't get it. I'm, I'm at a loss. I am also at a loss, but it goes to show you what I've been saying for years, which is... That Prince Edward Islanders are the ridiculous drivers of the week? No, no, I haven't been saying that for years. No, that, that jail for impaired driving offenses... It just doesn't make sense. Like the things, the, the goals of sentencing that jail serves, separating the offender from community, denunciation, general deterrence, all of that, it just isn't achieved when it comes to alcohol-impaired driving offenses. Why? Alcohol reduces your inhibitions. It makes you do stupid, impulsive shit. So are you going to think about your friend that went to jail when you're drunk? People do think, though, I mean, when they're not too plastered, when they're in mid-range plastered, so basically probably from 80 to, to 200, 220. They 220? Mid-range mid -range plastered. plastered. Look, Jeez. I've had lots of clients who are at 220 yeah. who are walking, talking, and just looking fine. Yeah. It's shocking to me, but um, sure, they all had symptoms. But the point is, there is a range when you're still thinking about, oh, fuck, I'd better not do this. I'm going to get caught. 
I don't know. Maybe you have to put an interlock into every car in Prince Edward Island. It's only 150,000 people. Condition of your uh, your Prince Edward Island driver's license. Have an interlock. Yeah. Well, either that or just like an interlock forever for anybody who gets a, an impaired. Yeah. Five so years of the interlock or something. Prince Edward Island, we're watching you. Well, Prince Edward Island, why don't you start with the school buses, okay? Put an interlock into every school bus. There's no reason a school bus should not have an interlock in it as far as I'm concerned. I've said this before. I've been 20 years harping on the same thing. What if there's a problem and a child needs to drive the bus and they can't produce enough air to get the interlock to accept a sample? I think the bigger problem would be the child has been drinking. <laughs> um, okay, so it is now, Paul. And the other thing is interlocks can make it so you could operate it at 30 kilometers an hour maximum. You know, why not do that? With the hazard lights flashing. You don't You don't want me to get to your favorite segment. Yeah, come on. I'm waiting. It's time for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. <laughs> Ridiculous driver of the week. Do we have like a horn or something? Yeah, some yeah, sort of we sound, have a sound yeah. yeah. Okay, it's been a while. I haven't listened because it, when oh, I'm yeah. the only one on, I don't listen. You to don't it. listen to my podcast. I listen to the podcast a lot, but I don't listen if I'm the only <laughs> guest. Okay, this week we have a woman who crashed her Porsche. Last week we had a Porsche crash too. This week we have a different Porsche crash. But the Porsche crash turned into an investigation because it turns out the woman was supposed to have quarantined after U.S. travel and just decided that she was exempt. Well, it, yeah, it crashed the Porsche and it was a hit and run, too. Yeah. Um, and then she got out, so she continued driving, and then the car couldn't be driven and then got out and tried to flee, apparently. And the police so, caught her. Yeah. Without their BPD. masks. Without their masks, and yeah, she was supposed to be in quarantine. So she also got a ticket or something for the quarantine violation. Yeah. You know, she could have faced worse. Like, I mean, she got a ticket, like a provincial ticket for the quarantine violation. She could have been charged under the Federal Quarantine Act, facing a criminal charge. Yep. And the Federal Quarantine Act mandatory penalties a million dollars, or minimum, or sorry, maximum penalties a million dollars. Yeah. She's got a Porsche. Yeah, she's not paying that. But the uh, point is that we don't, uh, they'd have to get real evidence in that case. And they'd have to prove it, whereas probably under the provincial legislation, they can just make she, up their own scheme. She entered the country. They have a record of her <clears throat> entering the country from the U.S. Still got to prove that in court. That she entered the country? Got to prove it in court. You got to call people to, you know, oh, print a it. camera you file, uh, the you, scene. You file the CBSA records as a business records yeah, exemption to the hearsay act no 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 that's not gonna do it yeah and then you and then you get no, her no, declaration no, no, no. provincial where she said, one you just give her the ticket and then you just have the <laughs> adjudicators who probably actually, are entitled to do investigation i feel a little bad for her because she came to the conclusion that she didn't need to quarantine because essential workers re-entering or entering canada to provide essential services are exempt from the quarantine requirements oh. the problem is that you have to clear with CBSA that you're an essential worker and make sure that they know that you're not going to be quarantining and that they're cool with it and they've, you know, verified your essential worker How status. Is, is she an essential worker? That was she what the essential? article said, yeah. She said she was under the impression that she didn't have to quarantine because she was an essential worker. Oh, okay. Well, but so... also... What the, is she then? A doctor? A lawyer? I don't know. Fuck if I know. Um, didn't say. Um... Also, the provincial 
list of essential workers is different than the federal list of essential workers. So the federal quarantine order... Yes, I did order. check into that. That's true. Yes, yeah. I know. Lawyers are on the federal order. They're on the provincial is order. Is Disneyland open? Yeah. That's not a, it's a, the federal order requires it to be for an essential purpose, Kyla. No, you're supposed to enter the country to provide essential services. They don't care why you leave. I actually think that you probably can go to Disneyland if it's open. Um, it's just really unsafe and you can't drive. I'm going to get them to open Disneyland just for me. And if you come back, you have to quarantine. Except for I'm an essential worker. Yeah. And I'll get my Porsche. There you go. <laughs> anyway, so she it. smashed up her Porsche. And, and then ran. And ran. And well, at least that's the allegation. She's innocent until proven guilty. So that's our podcast. Good podcast. I enjoyed that. Except I'm I'm depressed about the changes to the uh, to the IRP review scheme. We saw it when the legislation was introduced. I was kind of hoping that it would never pass. Yeah. And here we are. Here we are. Depressing. Oh, well. Keep going, Kyla. Yep. Onward and upward, twirling, twirling, twirling to greater freedom. If you have a driving law-related question, give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.